You're listening to Torah Classes with Rabbi Mendy Goldberg. This class is a recording from a live class. Good afternoon. No? Good afternoon. And we had last week a little uh, one week ahead of this, but we're back on schedule. And we're starting today. Today's class, we're going to talk about transformation and how do we get there. Okay. So there was a uh, very well-known uh, lyricist, I think that's the way you say it, right? Poet, writer, yeah. Israeli fellow by the name Yoram Taharlev. He started off being a reporter in the Israeli army for the uh, newspaper, for the army's newspaper known as Bamachaneh. And he was sent, you know, to interview different people, especially refugees and uh, that were coming in, immigrants that were coming into the land of Israel and interview them and see what their uh, ideas were and what they do and how they're being helped and if they're being helped and so on. So one of the places that he came to that he was interviewing, he was interviewing the new immigrants that came from Morocco and he was... Uh, uh, looking at, there was a place called Ramla, that over there they had a big deteriorating immigration, uh, you know, set up, if you want to call it a DP camp or whatever you want to call it at the time. And, uh, and he meets one of the fellows there, an immigrant, a new immigrant from Morocco, and he asks him, what do you do for a living? So he says he's a carpenter. And he says, no, have you found a job in, the, in Israel to be a carpenter? He says, no, he's still looking and he still hasn't found a job. He says, what? missing jobs in carpentry. You can build cabinets, you can build chairs, tables. Everybody needs a carpenter. So he tells him, no, 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 no. And the fellow brings him to his house and he takes off this beautiful, this plastic that was covering this beautiful, magnificent chair. And he says, this is what I like to make. He was making a chair. I don't know if you've ever been to a circumcision that they make a larger chair where the sandik, the person that holds the baby, is sitting on this beautiful, magnificent chair. And this is what he used to say. He says, I'm not just a carpenter who makes cabinets for simple things. I want to make a chair for Elijah the prophet. And Taharlev, this writer, became so impressed by the sincerity of this Jew that he, um, he created a song talking about a carpenter who sits and awaits and makes this beautiful, magnificent item until finally somebody will come to be on it. And who is it? Elijah the prophet is the one that comes to, to, uh, to sit on his chair. And then he adds on, then there's this shoemaker. He makes this beautiful pair of shoes and he's waiting. Who's going to have this most beautiful shoe? And it's only waiting until Elijah the prophet comes to enjoy it. So you have this, uh, and, and eventually this became into a song and so on and so forth. But what's so, what's so amazing about this song? Why, was it, why did it hit the core of many people and why would they feel so emotionally connected? What's so unique about this concept? Because many times people that are very spiritually inclined, they can be up in the air, spiritual, and when I'm involved in my spiritual endeavors, I'm this absolute spiritual guru and I'm closed in meditation, but then the moment I finish my spiritual high, so to speak, I'm back to normal materialistic way of behaving and nothing changed. And then you have people that are very involved in materialism who have no idea about spirituality. Over here, when you have a person who's taking his work, his ideas, his talents, and using them, and all he thinks about is some type of spiritual type of idea, creating carpentry for a chair of Elijah the prophet, 
It's like the fusion of physical and spiritual, the fusion of body and soul. And that's what's so enticing and so illuminating and so intriguing for many. And in fact, truthfully, this didn't just start with a fellow making a chair for Elijah the prophet. This is something which is going back over 3,000 years ago and something we're going to talk about today at length when God gave the Jewish people the commandment to build a tabernacle in the, in the desert. And if we look a little bit, and if we look even a little deeper into this concept, then as we'll get to it from the Hasidic perspective and the Kabbalistic perspective and the esoteric teachings behind what was the purpose of the building of the tabernacle, we'll see that this is all about fusion of physical and spiritual. So to get to it, let's start from the beginning. In this week's Torah reading, we read a review. In fact, this week is a double Torah reading. It's the last two Torah readings in the book of Exodus, where Moshe reviews the Torah readings to uh, Moshe reviews the commandments of building the holy temple and the tabernacle tore to the Jewish people. And we'll look at before we get into what Moshe told the Jewish people, how it all happened. But let's just take a step back for a question. And our general question that we're going to talk about and, and discuss today is, how is it and why does it, make, why does it even make sense that God needs a temple? Why does God even need a tabernacle? We're taking this big, infinite God, this big, beautiful, almighty, and limiting God to the cubits of a synagogue, of a temple, of a tabernacle, of any shape or form. God is all over. Why do we have to limit God to a certain physical sphere of place? Take it a step further. As we read about in the tabern- as we read about the uh, Torah readings, and we read about all the different Torah readings, about what the temple and the tabernacle was built of. Two weeks ago, we read that they had to donate gold, silver, copper, linen, purple wool, blue wool, and all the different materials that were needed, 15 different items that they were going to use for the tabernacle. Does God really need all those beautiful ornaments to be able to come to the Jewish people? God wasn't God everywhere, even more so. What does it mean that they're building a tabernacle? They're taking God from everywhere and putting only God only over here? If God says, build this tabernacle and only in this place where there's a godliness, God is all of a sudden there's nowhere else. The moment that they made the tabernacle and they built an altar there, does that mean that God's not anywhere else? So what's going on here? We're over here, what are we talking about? That why are we building a temple? What's the purpose of the temple and the tabernacle? And by extension, let's look at a synagogue for the same matter, as we're going to get to in a moment. Even more so, as the Zohar uses the terminology, there is no corner that's void of godliness. So it seems counterproductive to actually build a tabernacle. Taking it even more, but this is actually a question that Moses and King Solomon asked the question of God. When God comes along to Moshe and tells Moshe, build the tabernacle for me, and God asks Moshe asks God the question, why should he build a tabernacle? Isn't God all over? He's in the heavens and in the earth. He's above and he's below. Is there a need for a temple or a tabernacle? Even more so when Moses saw that King Solomon's temple was going to be bigger. He says, does God need a big, does even this big, beautiful home, can it contain God? What's going on? on over here the same idea we ask in the temple they lit a menorah does god need light in the temple they put bread there was bread that was there from the morning of one shabbos 
until the next Shabbos. The way it worked was there were 12 loaves of bread that would sit on the show table. They were called showbread because they sat on the table. And every single week, the incoming shift of Kohanim would partake in the bread, and then the outgoing shift of the Kohanim would take six loaves of bread. But the bread throughout the week would just sit there. Miraculously, it wouldn't get stale, it would stay fresh, it, was, it wouldn't become leavened bread. What's the purpose of it? Is God eating the bread? Why do we have to put the bread there? Put it out when the Kohanim are going to eat it. Why the need for all the semantics and all the decorations and having the menorah and the incense that smells? For what? Does God really need it to come into the, to a restaurant amongst the Jewish people? The Abarbanel asks this question as his commentator on the Torah, and he says, what was the need for all these different items? God is the one that gives everybody bread. What are we giving him bread for? Even more so, this question even becomes even stronger. When we look in Jewish thought, in Jewish thought, everybody knows you walk into a synagogue and everybody's facing east. Why do we face east? And in the other side of the world, in Australia and South Africa, they face west. Because we always have to face towards Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, they face towards Jerusalem. I mean, towards the Holy Temple. And in the Holy Temple, they face towards the Holy of Holies. What, why do I need to face a certain direction? If I dive in a different direction, God won't hear me. If I don't face east, God's not going to hear me? Well, what's the point of it? Isn't God all over? Oh, yes, there was a temple in Jerusalem. So just because there was a temple in Jerusalem 3,000 years ago, I have to face that direction. Today, when I daven, that every single synagogue is directed, that the ark is on the eastern wall, and that's the way we pray. Even if a person's traveling on the road, Code of Jewish Law says, you should face east when you pray. And if you can face east, have in mind, towards Jerusalem, towards the Holy Temple, because all prayers go through the Holy Temple. Even more so, let's take it even a step further, when if a person has a chance to pray, it's better that he pray in a synagogue than praying at home. What's wrong? If God's going to hear my prayers all over, why do I have to go at home? Why can't I say, why can't I just pray, why can't I just pray where I am? You know the famous joke that say the Israeli prime minister is having with the American president. Is he, pick your choice, which one? So the Israeli prime minister comes to the American president and he sees on his desk, he has a red phone. So he says, what's this red phone for? So he says, this red phone is when you want to communicate with God. He says, oh, wow, can I try it? He says, sure, you can try it. But I'm warning you, this is a very international call. It costs millions of dollars every single minute. He says, okay, fine. The next uh, few months later, the American president comes to Israel. And he sees on the Israeli prime minister's desk, he also has a red phone. So he says, wow, what do you got this red phone for? He says, this is communicate to God. He says, can I try it? He says, sure, no problem. Over here, it's a local call. <laughs> So, is there really a place that we talk about where God is? You know, during Corona, everybody was praying at home. They didn't go to the synagogue. And then everybody said, why should I bother going back to synagogue? We're praying at home on the Zoom. They were enjoying it, sitting in their pajamas and attending services. Is there a difference in going into a physical place? Why the need for a physical place? What does God all of a sudden get all uh, etched up about that? He needs to have gold, the silver. It has to be in a synagogue facing east. All these seemingly physical, materialistic limitations that we're placing God in a box. Why the need for it? Is that what God's all about? Do we need the physical ramifications? Do we need the physical limitations to be able to place God, to be able to connect to God? Why does God need a physical building? Why the synagogue is considered a holy place over a person's own home? And why do we told to face Jerusalem when we pray? 
seemingly they're all related. God should be everywhere. And our question is even stronger. As we look in Jewish law, where it tells us that we need to, so to speak, put into place even things today, isn't God all over? God will hear my prayer wherever I am. And simply put, one can explain and say that that house is actually not for God. The buildings are not for God. The menorah is not for God. The table was not for God. It's just for us. We need to, so to speak, feel an environment. We need to feel that we're part of it. You know, you walk into a place, the ambiance is what gives you the feeling, the emotion that you're in a sacred place. And one can answer and explain and say, you know, the reason why all these things were made and why all these ideas were, why God wanted that the temple and the tabernacle should be built in this way is because that the Jewish people should feel that they are connecting on some level. It's different than their regular home and therefore the synagogue doesn't look like your home. And because of that, there are particulars in Jewish law. The synagogue should be the tallest building. It's a nicer building. It's a time where you're only there to pray. When you make yourself a certain type of awesomeness to it, a certain type of prestige and pristine element to it, it gives the person a certain feeling that they're connecting to something greater. But actually from God, it really doesn't make a difference. That somebody can answer simply. Let's take, for example, somebody will say, you know, a husband and wife getting along, but every so often they need to go on a vacation, they need to go for a stroll, they need to go for a walk to be able to breathe fresh air, see a new light. Same idea, you can always have that communication, but you need to go to the synagogue to re-energize yourself or to get that feeling, that emotional capability. That's what someone explained and saying is simply put, that God told us to build it, that we should feel holiness there. But for God, he technically maybe doesn't need it. Someone who explained this, if you look in the Torah readings, if you look at the Torah readings that we just read, so if you look in the last, this week there's two Torah readings, then last week there was one Torah reading, and then the one before it, another two Torah readings. Two Torah readings before this past week were all about the building of the tabernacle. God telling Moses the commandments of building the tabernacle. Then there's an interruption that we read about the sin of the golden calf. That's this week's Torah reading, this past week. This coming week that we're going to be reading, the two Torah readings, are about the building of the tabernacle again, where Moshe takes what he heard from God and repeats it over to the Jewish people. So the question is, when actually did Moshe tell the Jewish people about the building of the tabernacle? And when was Moshe told about the building of the tabernacle? And there are two differences of opinions. Rashi, who is the simple interpretation on the Torah, as he usually says, is that the Torah does not, is not in chronological order. And because the Torah is not in chronological order, the Torah um, does not put things in chronological order. So therefore, the Torah reading of last week, which is about the sin of the golden calf, happened before the commandment of the building of the tabernacle. And the building of the tabernacle only happened after the sin of the golden calf. What's Rashi's rationale? And Rashi's rationale is as follows. What happened? Why all of a sudden did the Jewish people sin with the golden calf? They were just told on Mount Sinai about the Ten Commandments, don't serve any idols. All of a sudden, they're sitting with the golden calf. The Jewish people were so used to having the idolaters around them. And idolaters needed some type of physical medium to, so to speak, connect to God. They needed some type of emotional not only emotional and spiritual relationship, they needed something physical that they can relate to, feel that they have some space that they can become connected to God with. Therefore, after the sin of the golden calf, where the golden calf was then taken away, 
so to speak, because the golden calf, they said, we can't see Moses, so let's make the golden calf and replace Moses. God says, you know what? I'll give you a physical space. Build a sanctuary. The building of the sanctuary was, so to speak, to take the place of the Jewish people's need to have a physical space to connect to God. That Rashi wants to explain that for that reason, the building of the sanctuary was an atonement for the sin of the golden calf. Because the sin of the golden calf was the concept of taking materialism and using it as a medium to connect to God, God says, here you have a materialistic idea, I give you a building, I give you a space, and that becomes your way and your place to hear God. Because what was the nations of the world around them? The nations of the world, the way they served God, their gods, was all physical items. Judaism was the first religion around to come along and say, you're serving a God you don't see, you don't hear, you don't smell, you don't look at, and it's just this big man in the sky that you never met. So what did they do? That caused them, so to speak, to sin with the golden calf. Because that caused them to sin with the golden calf, so therefore they built the holy temple. The holy temple gave them now that ability to, so to speak, touch godliness in a tangible way. And actually, you walked into the holy temple, you were able to feel and sense godliness. Like we mentioned many times, the ark was finite and infinite, fused together, that if you were to measure the space that the ark took up, you would see it would take up no space. So they were able to feel and touch godliness to a certain extent. That's a simple interpretation. A simple interpretation which one can debate, yes or no, what do you mean that God tells us to build the sanctuary only because of the pagan idols? That sounds a little, um, if you want to say, soft. Doesn't have the full thrust of a good answer to the question. And because of that, there are many other um, commentators who say actually that the Torah was given, in, this part of the Torah is in chronological order, and they give the following explanation. And what happens here is as follows. And not only that, and the question that they have on this commentary is that how is it that God would come along and tell us, build for me a sanctuary as a response to the golden calf? That's all that the sanctuary, build for me a sanctuary. It seems like God wants it, he needs it. He doesn't need it because he's afraid of the competition of the idolatry. Is that really why God needs it? And therefore he says that the actual building of the tabernacle happened even way before the sin of the golden calf. That means God told Moses about the building of the tabernacle first and when he went up to the mountain the first time. Then he comes down the mountain and he sees the Jewish people sitting with the golden calf. So there's a delay in transmitting that news to the Jewish people. He says, first let them get through this challenge first. Once they get through the challenge of the sin of the golden calf, then he goes on to tell them after Yom Kippur about the building of the tabernacle. But not that one was the result or because of the other. Not only that, even more so, we can explain, that according to Nachmanides, he says, that by Moses telling the Jewish people to build a sanctuary, that was a rebuttal to the golden calf, saying that even though until now you served idolatry, God really forgives you because now he will come rest amongst you within the sanctuary. But the question still is, why does God then need this physical space? And with this, we come to the revolutionary concept that Hasidism explains in general in our attitude to physicality and even more so when we talk about the building of the Holy Temple. That the whole idea and the whole purpose of the Holy Temple was to fuse finite and infinite and exactly 
exactly that job that God gave the Jewish people then in building the tabernacle and with the building of the Holy Temple. And what the Holy Temple achieved, God is telling every single one of us, the Osuli Migdash, you have to make a sanctuary. Whatever kind of sanctuary God is demanding of us to take the materialism, to make the fusion of physical and spiritual. God wants us to reach into our infinite greatness and, and make it finite and bring the two together. How? And that's exactly what we're going to talk about. Taking a physical example first, there was a very famous uh, microbiologist. I think he was the first self-taught microbiologist. His name was Anthony von Lonkank. I have pronounced the pronounce. Yeah, he was a, uh, a guy from Holland. Lived about 400 years ago. He started off working in tapestries, making different uh, drapes and different types of things. And as he was looking into the different drapes that he was making, he was looking into the material and the way they used to analyze material to see if it's authentic or not. In those days, they would have a magnifying glass. And the magnifying glass would tell you if it's good or if it's not good, if it's real or if it's fake, if it's plastic, whatever it was at the time, it's 400 years ago, what they used to put in the, in, into the fake uh, drapery. He decided that he's not just going to rely on the magnifying glass, but he is somebody who invented what we would call today the microscope. He was able to take it and not, my uh, magnifying glass is 20 times more. He did whatever, 200 times more sharpening the glass to be able to, and this was all self-taught. And when he was looking at it through the microscope, he said, I see living things there, which today we call germs or microbes that are there, all the different things that are floating around and seeing all the things that are actually living, living organisms on everything that we have. And he was from the first microbiologist that taught us about the concept of germs. And he saw the living creatures that he called them on everything that was there. The better the microscope became, the more details we saw. And the more we learned that in every single thing that exists in this world, there are atoms and subatoms, and there are thousands upon thousands of atoms in every single little piece of atmosphere that exists. Even more so, what did we see? That things that seemingly are inanimate and look like dead or non-existent, like a solid piece of table, you look at it and you see that there are really things crawling around in there. It's really alive. There's something there that's keeping it in existence. Take an example. July 16th, 1945. What happened? Huh? When a bunch of people got together in a place called Los Alamos in the deserts of New Mexico, and all of a sudden they had a very hidden secret that they were about to plan and discover, which was going to be something which can either save the world or destroy the world. That same nuclear bomb, that same atom bomb that they were going to use, that, what would they call it, I think, Project Manhattan, right? The Manhattan Project, that that was going to be the first time that they were going to develop the atom bomb. Eventually that atom bomb was dropped in Hiroshima and brought an end to World War II. But that atom bomb, how it was used and how to come about, or even take about we spoke about before, the concept of nuclear energy. If you think about it, what's the most clean, pure energy to be able to bring and probably most effective, safe, not safest, most effective, cheapest, cleanest energy in the world is nuclear energy. What's the most dangerous energy in the world? Nuclear energy. That's why they don't want to use it. The atom bomb, what did it do? It found atoms, exactly what it is. It took and it capitalized 
on what you would look at in something that's tiny. How big was the missile that they dropped? I think it was a one-engine plane that dropped the missile in Hiroshima or something like that. That it was a tiny little thing, but because it had the capacity of all those atoms that was in it, it blew up and exploded. While there was something which may be the source of life, like the nuclear energy, it also has the ability to kill millions of people. Why do we even have to go so far as nuclear energy? The Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Chabad Rebbe, talks about in general. And he talks about in the uh, Hasidism, he tries to explain the concept of how something which contains one thing, which can contain thousands of thousands of neutrals and atoms and everything else. Take, for example, the way a child is born. The child is born from a drop of sperm. That sperm hasn't it. The genetics from generations and generations and generations, that's going to create once it sits in the womb of the, of the mother and it's there for nine months and it develops into a child who's going to have all those millions and millions of neutrons and atoms and sinews and veins and limbs. What does it come from? What is it coming from? Something that probably the body creates the most waste of. But if a drop of it is caught and put into the right place and ovulates and then is uh, nourished and cuddled and cultivated, you get this child who is now carrying genetics from generations and generations. How is it possible? How is it possible that you have one little thing that can be wasted and made into garbage, and at the same time, that same little thing can also have the future? The same idea is also we have in our intellect. I have intellect when I come about, and I think of many different things in my mind. Certain things I'm able to express, and certain things just go on. How many things do we have in our mind that we don't even talk about? We don't even express. Great ideas, maybe. They don't even come to fruition. And it just keeps on going. It's like just the energy, just move on. Let's take it now to the spiritual level and look at it from a spiritual perspective. What would you call the holy item? A mezuzah is a holy item. A mezuzah, we know, reflects on the people that are living in the home. You fix your mezuzah, it can help you emotionally, physically, spiritually, and all the different things. But what is a mezuzah? Look at the mezuzah. If I look at it only from a pure, physical, mundane item, it's a piece of parchment. What's the parchment? A hide of a, she- of a cow. What's a cow? Sits in the farm, dirty. What does it get? And I'm t- taking this hide and taking this parchment. And I put God's name on it, it becomes now the holiest thing that all of a sudden changes my entire life, emotional, spiritual well-being. Why is that? Because it's more than that. Every single thing that exists in the universe is godly. The Hasidic saying is, the Hasidic adage is, the greater something is, the lower it falls. Take an apple tree. The higher the apple, the further it's going to be from the tree. Because the greater something is, the lower it falls. Therefore, when we talk about something which is materialistic, physical, mundane, and seemingly zero connection to holiness, you know that that thing, when you reveal the holiness that's in it, has probably the greatest level of holiness. The Alter Rebbe, the first Chabad Rebbe, explains for that reason why the holy temple was greater than the Mishkan, than the tabernacle. Because the tabernacle was made out of wood. If you look in levels of levels of things, the way they're created, there's inanimate items, which is stone, rock, which seemingly have no life to it. Wood, which is vegetation, has life, but it's still 
not mobile. Animals are mobile, plus they have life. And then you have uh, people who are mobile, they have life. And not only that, they're able to have intellect, they have choices. So therefore, people become the highest on the totem scale, if you want to call it. If you look at the tabernacle, it was built out of wood. The walls are wood out of wood. What level is that? That's level two. However, what was the holy temple built out of? Rocks and stones. That's level one. So you may say, oh, it's much lower because it's coming from an inanimate object. The first Chabad Rebbe comes along and says, the very fact that it was made out of stone means that it's a higher place. Well, when we talk about the Mishkan, the tabernacle, came from vegetation, so a step higher. So therefore, it's not as great because it was on a higher level when we revealed way. So when we look at the concept of what we look at the world, everything that exists in this world, even on its physical, materialistic level, in and itself is spiritual and holy. So let's go back and ask our question that we asked before. Why did God need a physical item, a physical space to make the holy temple? Very simple. Because the entire purpose of the holy temple was to fuse physical and spiritual. If God wanted us to only have spirituality and connect to God in a spiritual way, We'll say, okay, take every day and meditate three hours a day and you're done. But that's not the purpose of the objective of this world. The purpose of the world of why God created a physical world with physical people, materialistic pleasures and selfish ideas is that we should take those selfish ideas, those physical pleasures and make them into something holy and make them something great. God wants us to take the physical world and transform it into a holy oasis. Take the physical and make it spiritual. If I don't take physical, I can't make it spiritual. So therefore, he says, take gold, take silver, take all the beautiful items in the world and make it into something spiritual. Therefore, when he comes and he says, where do you see? Where does one see that fusion of physical and spiritual coming into reality? It was in the holy temple. So when you pray, where am I praying towards? How do I know what to have in mind? How do I know what my own ultimate purpose of prayer is? Have in mind Jerusalem. Because in Jerusalem, in the Holy Temple, is where it personified and where you saw in a revealed way physical becoming spiritual. You saw rocks, you saw gold, you saw red sitting on the shobe table. Why? Because it was becoming spiritual. It was taking bread, a physical item, leaving it out there, not because anybody's going to eat it, because God wants it to make you to make it spiritual. And how do I make it spiritual? By taking the most mundane item and, making it, and using it for something holy. When a person takes something in his life, God is telling us, when you take a piece of wood and you build it as part of the tabernacle, or you take a stone and you make it part of the holy temple, you have now infused that stone with a spiritual idea. You have now made a finite item infinite. Just like when you take the microscope can see the pure levels that are there in the, in the you know, where the microbiologists can see the germs and all the living creatures that are happening in there, so too if you have the right eyes you're able to see the holiness in every single item. They say a story, the Rebbe, when he was in Berlin, he was very undercover. Nobody knew who he was. He walked around with a gray suit and a gray hat. He was well, officially going to college. People didn't know who he was. But one time, the Rebbe Aaron of Bells, he was the famous Bells Rebbe today that in Jerusalem, his father was in, came to Berlin. And the previous Rebbe told him that he should go meet him. So he went to meet him, but he didn't say who he was. After davening, everybody lined up to shake his hand. And the way it was, he used to, everybody had, he used to wear a glove on his hand, you know. When he came to the Rebbe, he didn't know who he was, he was dressed in his gray suit, shakes his hand, took off his glove to shake off his hand. 
They shake hands and he keeps on walking. Afterwards, he asks his assistant, who is that guy? But, so they told him, he's the son-in-law of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. He says, yeah, I knew, I felt a warm hand. Somebody that's able to sense spirituality is attracted to spirituality. When you have that ability, just like a scientist, when looking through a microscope, can see all the different atoms that exist within everything island, or the same way a doctor knows every sinew and every vein and every different in the leg or whatever is his job. So too, when you're in tune with your spirituality, you can see the spirituality that exists in everything. Our job is to be able to elevate the spirituality with all these different ideas. They say a story about a great scholar. It's brought in the book of Ramosha Chagiz. He was a rabbi that lived about 300 years ago, a famous rabbi from Europe and Jerusalem. He documents a story about a fellow who came from Spain, a former, a former um, Murano, you know, from, from Spain, who saved from the Inquisition, came to Eretz Yisrael, and he came to the land of Israel in Tzvat. In Tzvat was a big city of the Kabbalists, and he came to a synagogue, and he's sitting in the synagogue, it was one Shabbos, and the rabbi is giving a passionate speech about the bread, the showbread that was in the Holy Temple. And the rabbi is bemoaning the situation that today, unfortunately, we don't have a Holy Temple, so we can't bring the lechem upon him, the showbread, to, the, to, the, to God. He comes home. This is a very simple Jew. Doesn't know any monkey business. Tells his wife, repeats what the rabbi spoke about in, in Shul. And he says, listen, today God doesn't have the holy bread. Maybe we can make the challah for Hashem. And I'll bring it every single week and I'll put it into the ark and give Hashem the bread that he always wants. So that week his wife made this big, beautiful challahs, freshly baked. And he goes Friday afternoon into the synagogue, goes behind the ark, in his pure sincerity, puts these two challahs into the ark. Okay, he leaves. The shamash, who's the guy that cleans up the synagogue, is coming around the synagogue to clean up. And the shamash is having a very hard day and very upset because he didn't make much money, barely had a few pennies in his pocket, and he didn't have money to buy a challah for Shabbos. He goes over to the synagogue, he goes over to the ark, and he prays to God, God, my work is holy work. I need some money to be able to get chalas for Shabbos. He opens up the ark and he sees two chalas. He says, God, you answered my prayers. Take the chalas. Right before Shabbos, the, the uh, young Sephardic Jew comes back before Myriv, you know, Friday night, the daven, after everybody leaves, he sneaks into the ark. His chalas are gone. He runs and he tells his wife, God answered our prayers. He took our chalas. And this would go from week to week. He would bring a Friday afternoon. The shamash would take the chalas. Everybody was happy. He thought God's eating his chalas, and he said God's answering his prayers. And the life was going great. One Friday, the rabbi comes early, and the rabbi's sitting down to prepare his speech, to learn something. And he sees the young Sephardic Jew coming in to bring his chalas into the ark. And he sees, bring two chalas, he's moving the ark. The rabbi asks him, what are you doing? She says, you spoke about lechem upon him, God doesn't have the bread. Me and my wife decided, we're starting to bring bread to God. And every single week, God takes my bread. The rabbi looks at him and says, you foolish Jew. You think God eats bread? He needs your bread. What are you doing? This is not only temple. This is in temple times. What are you doing? And meanwhile, while they're arguing, the shamash walks in and he sees him holding the chalas. And he says, and all of a sudden the rabbi says, you know, gets that aha moment. And he says, ah, this is what's happening here. And now he understood everything.
But the Arizal, that Shabbos, that Friday, that Matzah Shabbos, that Saturday night, the Arizal sent the message. The Arizal lived in Tzfas. Rabbi Isaac Luria sent the message to the rabbi that he should come visit him. And he told the rabbi that, unfortunately, you will not live to the end of the year. He says, why? He says, from the day that the holy temple was destroyed, God did not enjoy such pleasure like these two Jews, how they believed that God was taking their bread and God was giving them as gift. What did this Jew do? Now we can understand. Because if we believe with sincerity that our bread is what's godliness, then that bread becomes holy. Then it's just like the bread in the holy temple. Because if that's what you believe, if you're putting your energy in it, your holiness in it, then that's what it is. What does this mean to us? Does it mean that we should start making challah? No. I mean, nothing wrong with making challah. But what does it mean to us? Every single one of us, God tells us, the osuli mikdash, make for me a sanctuary. God is demanding that every single one of us make fuse finite and infinite. It's not only in the time of the temple that God said, I needed a space. I need a physical space. God created this physical world and he gave us physical people talents. Some people have a talent with money. Some people have a talent with a pen. Some people have a talent with building. Some people have a talent with speaking. Every person God gave a God-given talent. And he wants you to use your God-given talent and make it holy. The osuli mikdash. God gave you something. Take what is yours and dedicate it to godliness. Take your mundane physical item, whether it's a talent, an emotion, an excitement, whatever it is, and make it holy. God wants that physical item. He wants that gold, that silver, that bread, that menorah, that spices. Take something physical and make it into spiritual. One of the beautiful samples you can see where the Rebbe brought the Saturn to fruition was the very famous artist. His name was Baruch Nachshin. I'm sure you've seen some of his pictures. He always has people flying and so on. But how did he become an artist? He was an artist for many years. He grew up in a home, eh, like a modern, traditional, if you want to call it, home in Israel. And after the army, he became very friends in Kfar Chabad, and he became close to Chabad. And after he got married, him and his wife decided they're going to go visit the Rebbe. And he had a three-hour private audience with the Rebbe. And he was telling, his Rebbe, telling the Rebbe that he likes to draw. And for years in his family, they were drawing, but he was looking to see how drawing art, what's its relationship with holiness? And the rebel looked at him and said, with very strong words, he says, for generations, people were not, not able to utilize art for holiness. It is up to you to change that. Use your, trend, use your talent of art in creating holy items, holy pictures, and lifting people and uplifting art. In fact, the Rebbe told him, I'm going to support you for a year and you go make pictures and do art. Even more so, he started making drawings of Jerusalem and Hebron and all the beautiful holy cities and all these different depicting beautiful ideas of Israel. When he had already a big uh, collection, he came to New York and he was going to make a, a uh, gallery, you know, like a show. It was the, when he came to the Rebbe to show the Rebbe two pieces that he drew, the Rebbe went, let one one of the only times that the Rebbe left his office to go to something other than to pray or to talk was to go see his art show. 
And then the Rebbe asked him in every single picture, there's even a picture, it was in the library, they set it up. And the Rebbe asked him about that picture and the details of it. And then the Rebbe asked him, how are sales going? So he says, when people hear the price, they faint. So the Rebbe told him, so sell the pictures only to healthy people. <laughs> he said, because if people hear the prices, they faint. He said, sell it only to healthy people. But what was the Rebbe stressing with this individual? Our mission in this world is not to be up in the sky. It's not to escape reality. Hasidism teaches us that our job is to work with our body, to work with the physical and material, to transform the physical and the material, not escape it. And therefore, when the way we achieve the ultimate purpose of God's creation in the world is when we take the physical world and we make it a holy place. When we take the physical items in the world and make it something holy. When we take the parchment and use it for a mezuzah. We take the wool and use it for tzitzis or a talus. When we take the leather and use it for tzvillin. This is the objective of what God gave us the world for. And therefore, why are we here? What's the purpose of the world? Is to make this world, everything we encounter, into making it into something holy. Ultimately, that's what the coming of Mashiach is about. When Mashiach comes, we will see within every single item the holiness that's in it. We will be that uh, scientist that's able to look through the microscope and see the, the, all the different organisms that exist within the material. We'll also be able to see the holiness that exists within every single item. But up until then, it is our job to elevate it and use it. So whether it's a coin by putting it in the pushka, or whether it's a talent that God gave us, whether it's writing or drawing, whatever it may be, to utilize them and elevate them and make them something holy. When we do that, then we can be assured that we'll ultimately come to the time when the coming of Mashiach will see the revelation of every single spiritual item, how it comes into a spiritual way.